there's always, you know, a endless messy middle in the sense that you're fighting against society's immune system, right? Like the, the, the world and any micro world within a company inherently wants to keep the water running and wants to stay online and kind of knows that by extinguishing all these new risky things that are liable to get us off track and over budget and distracted by extinguishing those things, we can stay on course. And so there actually is a very active immune system that kills off anything that's new. And so when you're really doing something new or bold, right, you're, you're, you're defying, you're trying to compete with the immune system that is out there to actually suppress you. I think it'd be safe to say that Scott Belsky knows a thing or two about creative work. Many of you may know Scott Belsky. He launched Behance in 2005, which is a creative community that now has something like over 12 million professionals on it. He also founded 99U, a conference and an online publication all about productivity in the creative world. In 2012, Adobe actually acquired Behance, where Scott then took over responsibilities, including Adobe's mobile products, the creative cloud service offerings. And then this year, in 2018, Scott was named Adobe's chief product officer, where he now oversees all of their creative products. So like I said, he knows a thing or two about productivity and executing on creative work. So he wrote about it. His new book, The Messy Middle, is all about the hardest part of any creative endeavor. The middle. Everyone likes to talk about the beginnings and the ideas, and of course the ends and launching and shipping. Very few talk about the middle, the anguish, the unknowns, the setbacks, structure, communication. This book covers it all. So in my sit down with Scott, we got into a lot of that. So I really enjoyed this one and catching up with a friend. I hope you do too. The messy middle. It's, um, it really is. It's meant to um, talk not about the starts and the finishes of ventures, but rather the extraordinarily volatile period in the middle where it's all about enduring and surviving those lows um, and uh, where, where you just are working in complete anonymity, ambiguity, uncertainty, um, self-doubt. And what, how do you keep yourself engaged? How do you keep your team together? Um, and really just unpacking a lot of the tactics that great uh, leaders use with their teams and, and just independent professionals also use to keep themselves focused and, and with it. And then, um, and how do you, and how do you optimize the peaks? Whatever is working, how do you do more of it? How do you do it better? How do you capitalize on it? Whether it's how your team's working, how you're leading the team, or how your product is functioning. There's actually a big chunk of the book that's all about product and just how to make a great customer experience. The concept is really interesting to me and one that you've surely gone through several times, uh, starting with Behance, right? I mean, now... Uh, you know, facing it as a team at Adobe, it's hard to believe that uh, you know some of the some of the lessons in in the messy middle, uh, you know, battling anonymity. It's hard to believe Adobe has to has to handle that at all, right? Anonymity waved uh, goodbye to Adobe a long time ago, but the projects, the <laughs> products you're working on, surely uh, before they're before they're public or even when they're in beta, they're not. You know, they're they're sort of anonymous, and you don't really have the uh, expansive sort of feedback from the market yet, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I think that there's a messy middle of every bold project, whether it's a new venture, which is, I would say, you know, a big bias in the book towards new ventures, but also big projects within large companies that are bold, creative projects that 
are much greater than the quarterly cadence of a public company or um, iterating the product that the company is already known for, you're back in the messy middle again. And there are many different, um, whether they're new products or turnarounds of some existing products of ours, or we're ready to kind of take it to the next generation where I find the team back in that messy middle in the sense that they don't know what their end is in sight. They don't have it in sight, at least. There's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in the project itself. They are working in under relative anonymity in the sense that their business, their product is not a business yet. They're just thinking about the, the future and they're, again, the business doesn't consider them real yet. And, uh, and they're trying to endure and optimize in the very much the same way. So I actually feel the messy middle applies to any bold project or new venture. Right, right. And, and uh, how do you, so, so some of those, uh, th- there's really no way around it, right? I mean, the, uh, th- this is sort of inevitable, right? Some of these uh, challenges that you face uh, in the messy middle. So uh, you, you talk about in the book optimizing the hell out of everything that works and, and uh, ways to improve the way that you hire and manage your team and, and things that can help obviously navigate that. Um, but uh, I guess, are there, are there ways to, to circumvent the messy middle or is that not possible? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, in the book, I will talk a little bit about the difference between um, ventures and replays. You know, to me, replays is when you do something that someone else has done, you just find a faster way of doing it, and uh, you're essentially replaying someone else's playbook. And that's one way to circumvent the messy middle, of course, by doing so, while you may capture some margin in an industry um, by making something a little cheaper. Um, I, I just don't consider that to be the type of work that changes an industry or changes the world. So, so yeah, so I mean, right. So for an example, you, you mean basically just just jumping into a, a, a maybe a crowded right. market and, and copying another business model and maybe going after the uh, the the lower end of the market type of thing. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about it, if you're asking about how you skip the messy middle, I mean, the best way to do it is to play a playbook that's already been played, right. and uh, you know, and then you're not working under lack of lack of con- you, you know where that you know what the end state is you know what the tactics are you know whatever i mean not to say that it isn't still hard and by the way there might be many businesses where that's a fine thing to do um the, the focus for this for this project was really on those that are you know doing something new net new within a company or on their own and the trials and tribulations of that um and for that to answer your question there's always you know a endless messy middle in the sense that you're fighting against society's immune system, right? Like the, the, the world and any micro world within a company inherently wants to keep the water running and wants to stay online and kind of knows that by extinguishing all these new risky things that are liable to get us off track and over budget and distracted, by extinguishing those things, we can stay on course. And so there actually is a very active immune system that kills off anything that's new. And so when you're really doing something new or bold, right, you're, you're, you're defying, you're trying to compete with the immune system that is out there to actually suppress you. And I think that's where a lot of these challenges uh, and that, the, the sources of the volatility come from. And that, would it be safe to say, I mean, it's a generalization, but the bigger the company, probably the stronger the immune system. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think the um, right you face more of that pressure that, that, like you mentioned, maybe sometimes extinguishing, or uh, it, it, it depends. I mean, I think it's actually more of a cultural thing. I mean, I I think 
Amazon, which is probably one of the biggest companies right. in the planet, actually is the best or among the best in terms of allowing new seedlings to germinate and, you know, and, and tolerating failure when they came out with their fire phone and then it failed <laughs> yeah. miserably. You know, Jeff went on the record saying, hey, this was great and expect more of this. Right. Um, because yeah. he knows that this is what is required to push the envelope, especially as they become so big. Google was known for that too, the twenty percent time, and and uh, the, they they were known for that for a long time too. But you're right, yeah, Amazon is is probably the biggest uh, the biggest practitioner of that these days. Um, yeah, and you mentioned a lot of ideas like that in in the, in the book, immune system and having healthy tensions inside a product organization. But you, you said something else that I really liked, which is uh, having no elephants in the room. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it, it really is, um, well, you know, I get into it initially by talking about this concept of organizational debt, you know, being the, just like technical debt, which is all of the bugs or things that, you know, the old code that accumulates that ultimately ends up being a burden for a team in becoming fast, agile and bleeding edge. Um, similarly, organizational debt is all of the decisions that should have been made, but weren't. And, uh, and all of the things that should have been said out loud and debated that weren't. And I, I think that the elephants in the room, whenever you're sitting in a room with a, a small team and there's just like something that no one is, everyone or many people have on their heads or even just you, um, that no one is saying because it's like, oh, we don't want to open up that can of worms or this is an awkward situation or no one's made a decision on this yet or it's a third rail topic. You know, Any of that stuff, when you're thinking that stuff, it is just such a clear and present sign that you're adding to the organizational debt that will ultimately hurt you. And so I like to say, you know, no elephants in the room in the sense that I like having a culture in my teams where you're, you're encouraged to blurt these things out because otherwise, yes, we might have some short-term suffering associated with those realizations or statements, but it's important to know and talk about and surface. How is the uh, uh, how is the product team sort of like how big is the product team at at a, you know your team at Adobe how how is it structured and uh, give some details and background on your team? Sure. So you know in my in my current role at Adobe, um, I'm overseeing all of the creative products. So whether it's Photoshop or Illustrator, or Premiere Pro or Spark, which is one of our new products for social marketers to make like quick easy social media social media designs. Um, and, uh, and all of these teams, and there are maybe up to around 40 of them, believe it or not, um, you know, these are all, all the teams are basically divided up into segments. So there's video, digital video and audio, there's digital imaging, um, there's design, um, there are different segment leaders that I have that oversee the different product managers for every product within their segment. And, um, and so, you know, what I get to do every day is, spend time on both the segment strategy, the, well, the, the company and the creative cloud strategy at a top level, and then the segment strategy um, at the next level, and then at the product strategy, which is, you know, within each segment. And uh, I think it's, I mean, listen, it's, I love this stuff. I love thinking about how the future um, of the creative world will be, like how creatives will operate, the major things that are changing in terms of cloud workflows, you know, people working with each other instead of working on an isolated file on their desktop um, and different and new mediums emerging like voice and augmented reality, um, the role of artificial intelligence and in making design more productive 
I mean, there's just so many fun things to think about. Um, and the, one of my greatest things, you know, that I love thinking about these days is also just how to make our products more accessible to more people. They're just hard to use. Um, a lot of people open up Photoshop once they look at it, they're like, Oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. And they close it and they never come back. And how can we, you know, how can we change that? Right. Yeah. I think, uh, especially for, for, uh, I think the, the idea behind a product like spark is brilliant because the people that are trying to just make social images or, or, uh, you know, images for blog posts and stuff like that. Yeah. It, it could seem intimidating, right? Like all of the, all the features and, and, and options. Um, so when you have a, so how big, like how big is the product organization? Gosh, we have, um, we have definitely over 2000 people, wow. you know, that are in our product organization for on the creative side of the business. And, um, and then, uh, but you know, and then every uh, there, you know, I have a staff of say 10 people or so, um, that, you know, that ultimately oversee all the segments and parts of the organization. How do you. I mean, there, there's plenty of organizations that I can think of that aren't even that big in total. I mean, that's across marketing, sales, customer support. So how do you, um, how do you ensure like the right, I think you've talked about before and, and you know, you, you write a lot for medium, the importance of, you know, communication and even over communication, especially when you're going through, uh, you know, the messy middle, how do you like, what, what kinds of mechanisms do you have in place to make sure that, um, you know, you, you can sort of keep your finger on the pulse of that many teams of that many people, um, I would, I would assume that that exacerbates, potentially exacerbates the issue, right? <laughs> um, and I, I wouldn't profess that I'm an expert, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, what I like to do is first of all, you have to make a list of the things that you think really matter right now that you believe you can make a material impact in at the moment or in the near future. Cause listen, there's all there. If I, if I met with every product team every week, I would, I could be up 24 seven for seven days straight. You know, it's like. <laughs> So it's, it's do, do really, you, do you try to reach consensus on that? Cause, or, or is, or is it something that, that comes from you and maybe a couple other on this, on the C level? Um, I mean, in terms of, I, I definitely have my own list that is, is based on what I believe. Um, but I do get input from my colleagues, you know, and our CEO on the areas that I want to be pushing the most. Right. Um, and, uh, and where I, again, believe I can make like a material impact and things that really matter now. Um, and, uh, and what I do is I have, uh, I call it my active tracking list, which is like the list of things and they could be, um, they're usually like at below a product level, like, um, you know, what, what is the state of, of sharing within Lightroom, for example, um, Lightroom is a very popular product among photographers around the world. And, you know, what, what should sharing mean within this product? Um, you know, it's something that I'm thinking a lot about, and on a strategy level, believe that I can help uh, influence, and it's wor- it's very material for that product experience. And so that's like the to give you a sense of the granularity. You know, that's the type of you know thing I would keep on my active tracking list among many others. And then um, and then th- when I really think about managing my time um, or the messages that I want to send to the organization, I'm always looking at my active tracking list. Now that's different from the meeting cadence that I have because I, of course, I have to approve the roadmaps for every product and I have to make decisions around where we shift our resources and that sort of thing. Um, and so I try to bifurcate those two different parts of my, uh, you know, parts of my job. And so are your, are your priorities determined sort of by, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, iterating and simplifying, you know, the product based on customers' needs. 
So how much of your priority uh, priorities are, are sort of based around customer feedback that you're hearing and, and sort of where do you fall? Because I've worked with, with product people before that spend hours or have people on their team that spend hours in customer interviews. And then I've also worked with others that are like, you need five. You need to talk to five customers to give you a good, uh, a good idea directionally and it allows you to move quicker. So uh, yeah, that's a two-parter. One, how much of your priorities are informed by what you're hearing from customers? And two, where do you fall in that spectrum yeah. in terms of how much time is spent kind of uh, learning what the customer is 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 experiencing in the product? It's a good question. You know, to, <clears throat> to answer your, your second one first, uh, each product manager, you know, within my organization is a little bit different in the way that they um, they incorporate customer information research analysis, you know, and, and feedback into their process. So it's hard to give you, because I mean, and I respect those differences. And in fact, I think different products re- require different, different levels of this as well. Um, and different types of customers. I mean, sometimes if you're trying to make a product easier to use for new users, you're actually having a bias suddenly towards new customers in the funnel um, as opposed to deeply understanding the power of power users and making the product inherently more complicated to serve them. So there's also the element of where the product is in its own life cycle. Uh, so I, you know, I, if I, as a product manager myself, um, I typically, um, I just like to be shoulder to shoulder with a lot of customers so I can get a sense of their frictions, like what's the problem and then I like to actually focus on a few. I call it the more Nike approach where you pick a athlete and you're like, hey, we want to make the perfect shoe for this athlete, knowing that everyone else wants to be like that athlete. I like that approach for other products as well. And so I typically will give teams two things, two, two parts of, of, of guidance. One is make sure that you cast a very wide net to understand the customer problems, the volume of them. Are they associated with new or old customers in terms of, you know, the life cycle, like really understand that. But then when you're trying to, when you're trying to conceive of what the product should be, try to pick a few customers that you really want to, you know, that are your prototypes uh, and then, um, and then optimize for them knowing that others want to be like them. I love that. And sort of be on a, uh, a more regular sort of communication schedule with them is, is when you talk about being shoulder to shoulder, it's, 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 uh, is it less about, you know, scheduling zoom calls and more about, um, shooting a Slack message or shooting a quick email or, yeah. or I've, I've even known people that had cell phone numbers of, of customers that they were close with. Right. That, oh, totally. Yeah. Or, or, you know, have you know, even consider the idea of having customers, um, in your space, um, you know, I know, I know some design teams that will literally have, uh, you know, they'll have rental desks, um, for people to, you know, they'll watch them use their product I mean, you can get very creative in it. But at the end of the day, um, I think that there's this misconception that having a passion for a problem or a solution is like the most important thing in building products. When in fact, I think it's having empathy over, over passion. Um, if I were to choose between the two, constantly seeking more and more empathy with the customer suffering the problem will never lead you astray. However, having passion for a solution often leads you astray because you start to design you know, and get carried away on something that you see in your mind. And then almost like a game of operator where each person tells each other a message and it's totally a different message by the time it gets back to you. 
when you have like a super, you know, a strong passion for something and you just go off and you stop checking back with customers, oftentimes the outcome becomes much different than what you out, what you tended, you know, set out to build. Yeah, you're less open to feedback, more prone to to pet projects and pet rocks. Um, yeah, you're you're right. It's a uh, much much more. You leave yourself open, right? To yep to kind of being isolated in 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 your uh, ideas and product development. Um, so the me- the messy middle, like yeah, I-, I love the the theme of of a lot is focused on whether it's media, the stuff people write and blog about around starts and either launches or even exits, right? And and not a lot of attention is paid to to the hard shit in the middle. So I, I love that uh, uh, you know some of of your ilk is is actually putting ink to this. Um, so you you broke up the book into three sections, right? What what were those three sections? Yeah, so I was trying to, um, you know, I had this, so I found myself when I started to really call this project together and say, okay, I'm going to make this into a book. That was about maybe two years ago. And I had at the time over 800 insights that I'd accumulated from boardroom conversations, from late night calls with entrepreneurs at like one in the morning, from my own experiences, building Behance, getting acquired, integrating, leaving Adobe. Um, you know, all of this stuff had kind of culminated in all these insights was the idea to write a book the whole time was that what you were doing i wasn't it wasn't clear actually um at first i was cataloging them so that i could have them as my own reference and like leverage them in some way shape or form in the future and i wasn't sure if that was going to be some presentation about the middle stages of ventures or something else um but about two years ago when i was when i decided that i wanted to put this in and really make it a book that i could really you know just present to anyone who's starting a venture or especially those suffering through the middle stages. Cause you know, look at my portfolio of companies I've invested in. It's over a hundred companies now. And I would say at least half of them, if not more are still like very much in the no end in sight middle stages of their venture. But even like successful ones like Pinterest or Uber or others have had obviously tremendous volatility um, and, uh, and gone through, you know, just when they thought they were kind of creeping out of a messy middle, they revert back to a true messy middle stage again. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to um, always capture them. I'm also like an obsessive capturer because I feel like if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. So then I found myself with over 800 of these insights, and then I said, okay, gosh, like how am I going to even tackle this? And so what I started to do is go through and tag each one of them. And what I found is that they were all tagged with either like something you think about at the start, um, something that's really related to endurance or how to properly suffer and overcome those middle stages. Um, A lot of it was tagged optimization, like just how do you make your product better, your team better, yourself better, and how you're making decisions and, you know, sort of also how you're sharpening your your intuition and instincts. And then there was some stuff that I tagged finished because it was really about the final mile. Um, There were a number of insights related to how often entrepreneurs or artists will kind of sabotage their work at the end. Like they feel like they don't deserve it. They'll do stupid things. They will start to make decisions in areas that they don't even have, you know, the the success that they've had, the skills that got them there are totally different than the skills that you need at the final mile of a venture. And they would fail to realize that. So there were some insights around that. So that left me with like, what's that, four different sections, kind of start, endure, optimize, and final mile. And then I decided to cut off the start because I felt like that was a story that's been told many times 
by many different people. And I really wanted to focus on what I felt the meat of was the middle. And so there's three sections in this book. There is Endure, which is, again, all about that endurance stuff. There's Optimize, which is the largest section of the book, which is about team product self and uh, and just tons of insights. And there's over 100 different you know insights in the book. And then the, the final mile piece at the end. And ultimately, I boiled down these 800 or so insights to just about 120 or so um, that ultimately made the cut and got woven into the book. I love that. And, and you know, section by section, the Endure, you talk a lot about self-doubt, uh, the roller coaster of successes and failures. And, and you spoke about this earlier, but the sort of uh, fighting against that sort of anonymity. Um, wh- how, how do you, I mean, at a high level, because obviously there's much more detail in the book and, and people should check that out. But w- what are what are ways to to sort of navigate that, especially like self-doubt, right? And founders, especially early stages in companies, uh, self-doubt and anonymity is, is something that you face every single day, right? So, uh, I mean, for, from somebody who started Behance, uh, uh, you know, all the way to acquisition. And now, now you're at Adobe. Like how, how did you personally work through those things? Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's a lot I can answer that with. I mean, I think a few, few top level themes that I include in the book, but also like personally subscribe to, and were very important in my own journey. You know, one was what I call short circuiting your reward system. And this is really about the recognition that, the, the short-term rewards we're governed by are not enough to get us through a very volatile journey that you, the long-term sort of vision is exciting enough to get you started, but nothing, not enough to keep you engaged and get you to the finish. And, um, and so there's some, you know, there's some aspect of how do you short circuit your reward system? How do you make games for your team to optimize towards when there isn't any formal source of rewards like customer validation or financial revenue or anything like that. Um, and I talk about as a, as a, as a leader of one of these bolder projects, new ventures, you're the narrator of a journey that is almost like an endless car drive with the windows blacked out. And so you can't see outside. (laughs) You have no idea where you are. And unless the front driver is the, the, unless the, the front seat person or driver, whoever is narrating you through saying, you know, we're just crossing this milestone. We're just crossing this landmark. And that's what's required to kind of keep you sane, right, in that journey. And um, you know, it is the leader's job to be that narrator and to figure out you know, how to, in some ways, merchandise progress to the team so that they feel like they are making progress. However, I juxtapose that with the fact that you can't celebrate fake wins. You know, you it's okay to make up kind of metrics that you want to optimize towards that condone the right behaviors. But what you don't want to do is like, say, you know, pay to get into an award show and win an award. Some of these, you can just like basically buy an award or you can buy a paid promotional piece, an article somewhere, and then send that around to your team celebrating it. That's a fake win because the, the actions that were required to get it are actually things that will hurt you in the long run, not help you. And so there's, you know, and that's actually, by the way, an example of one of the contradictions I try to highlight in the book, where you do want to manufacture wins, but you don't want to fake them. And like, what's the difference there? Um, You do want to short circuit your reward system. You also want to have a long-term vision in mind, like what's the balance there? So, you know, that's just a few, a few examples in the early. And the last thing I would just say is just 
the the ultimate power of self-awareness and what that really means, you know, for for one of these bold journeys where you just have to know when you are making decisions out of fear. You have to know when you're making decisions out of ego. You have to always be doing a reality check around what you attribute to successive decisions versus good timing and luck. All critical points. Does any of that, because, you know, a lot of what you just said is is positioned, obviously, especially in, in the early days, maybe pre, pre-revenue or pre-product market fit, but even it, I'm sure it's applicable to, to your team as well, right? Like, so uh, just because uh, obviously Adobe is 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 extremely successful and well-known, you and your team surely face some of these challenges every time you start a new project, right? Sure. I mean, it doesn't matter how big of a company you are. And in some ways, the bigger, the more important it is to be able to endure some of these hardships without short-term rewards. Because, I mean, we're all addicted to them, especially when you are in an environment where everyone else is on a quarterly cadence. Right. And, and, and marketing too, extremely susceptible to these things. You see it all the time, uh, especially with the social triggers that we have, right? Is li- likes and, and comments and shares and, and can give you the impression that uh, maybe certain things or, or, or campaigns are, are more effective than maybe they really are, or, or, or even businesses in general. So, yes. Um, yep. And, and you see, you see marketers succumb to that all the time, doing the things that give them that signal, and maybe not necessarily the things that are uh, long term, you know, success, you know, are going to contribute to long term success. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it is seductive in this world of social media, you know, for companies to think that they're you know doing better than they are based on what, again, they're seeing on the feeds, right. And, um, I have to say, though, that the founders or leaders I admire most are just like brutally honest with themselves. They they can see um, just great. You know, there's one company in my portfolio that is um, that just keeps having sort of a restart on what their strategy is, like what their product is. Each product that they do, actually, it does work to a degree. Like they get super high engagement um, and from any other person's lens would be like, Oh yeah, that's working. Keep at it. But this CEO in particular, is so focused on the growth that will be required to be a successful business that when he doesn't see the natural path to growth, he'll just literally restart the team on something entirely different. And his attitude is, listen, I'm saving ourselves two years of pain, pushing something forward that we don't inherently believe will grow on its own. We're just going to keep going until we find it. And I just admire it so much because it's just so there's such truth governing um, his uh, his decisions, and I think that's so rare because it's so easy to look at the bright side, look at the half a glass half full, and stick with the plan. Right, it's got to be you have to have the right team too, right? Because that could be deflating to to uh, you know to a product team maybe that you're sort of pivoting or restarting, um, uh, you know, may, maybe frequently. Yep. Um, so the second section of the book, optimize the hell out of everything. I know you reference a few things, improving the way you hire, manage your team, but uh, I guess what, what's the, what's sort of the, you know, the high level, the spirit of that section? Well, the high level of this is that, um, is that it really, the, 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 the positive slope of a journey, right? Even though it's very volatile and they're never ending ups and downs, but the, the achieving that positive slope comes down to making every high incrementally higher. And those highs are typically, you know, those wins, if you will, or those, 
those moments where you feel like things are working fall into three camps. They're either how you're optimizing your teams, how you're building, hiring, firing, the culture you're building, the way your team is structured and how you communicate, how you clear paths to solutions. Um, so that's like the first sort of team aspect to it. Then when it comes to product, how are you able to iterate and simplify and get traction? Um, how are you able to anchor to your customers and continually get closer and closer to what they really need? I would say that's like the product piece of it. And then when it comes to optimizing yourself, then you have to start asking, okay, like how are we planning and making decisions? Um, how uh, Or how am I planning and making decisions rather? How am I getting, crafting better business instincts? You know, how am I making sure that um, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at the balance of data versus my own intuition properly, or I'm not just blindly optimizing, but also auditing the measures I use to see whether we're going in the right direction. Um, also, how am I not just focused on scaling the business, but also the things in the business that don't scale that really distinguish us over time? That's all the business instinct stuff and, um, and sharpening and sharpening your edge and staying permeable, staying self-aware, recognizing when things aren't going right. You know, that's all in the optimization section. So team, product, self. And, uh, and I would say that's sort of the, the theme, you know, of the section, if you will. But it's just chock full of these insights and so many stories um, to, to back them up. I think a tendency, too, is when you see the things that are working is to what are the things that maybe can be improved to the things that aren't working. So th this is more of a focus on the things that are working, how to how to sort of make those peaks even higher, right? And and uh, sort of a, a shift a bit in, in mindset. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's um, I mean, I do think that there are so many things that you have to do to be a successful venture or startup or or new product that um, <clears throat> you can get you can get obsessed with the things that aren't working. But it's really the few things that are that differentiate you. And uh, and so whether it's, a, I mean, if let's say you have a completely wrong product, but your team is just so well managed and engaged and the culture is so great that you're able to stick together long enough to figure it out, you'll end up finding the right product. So it's, you know, it's, you really want to optimize the things that are special and just differentiating rather than obsess over the things that don't work because you know, those are the, th the things that differentiate you inherently are the ones that make you win. Right, right. Um, and then you also the final mile, not screwing up the final mile of a project. Uh, uh, I guess first, like to level set, like what's the, what, what do you consider the final mile? Well, the final mile is when something, when, when the pace changes, when something major happens, it could be an acquisition, it could be a release of your book or your art. It could be, um, or the you know the the period right before the release. It's when it's when the end suddenly is in sight. Whereas throughout the mess in the middle, it typically isn't. And when the end is in sight, first of all, you know there's a whole set, different set of skills that you need to make great decisions in that final mile. There are a lot of psychological challenge challenges that can come up because there's a part of all of us that believes we don't believe, we don't deserve it or that we didn't earn it ourselves or that um you know we're we're worried about life changing and we're not sure of the implications or we're not sure what we're going to do next when you publish a book or get a piece of artwork done or sell a company there's a sense of 
excitement as well as what am I going to do next? Am I going to just be known for this? Am I my work or am I not my work? How do I, how do I make sure that I don't entangle the two? And, uh, and how do I not fall into that inevitable, oh, you know, the second business is never as good as the first or the second book is never as good as the first or my next art piece is not as good as the previous. And I just think that there's so much to be thought about in that, in that area. And I, I just couldn't end the book without making sure that we tackled and confronted some of, some of those, you know, some of those things. So how do you pass the baton? Um, also, if things don't work out, if things fail, um, you know, if you can't end wonderfully, how do you end gracefully? What does that even mean? Um, so these are some of the questions that I tackle in that section. And for you personally, right? I, I love that. I mean, most authors, I guess you can argue, uh, go through the things that they write about, although some do, you know, a, a lot of research in order to 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 have the, the subject matter expertise to write about it. But you've gone through all of this firsthand. Um, this is your, is this, how many book? what, what number book is this now that, that you've written? Yeah, I mean, from, from as a solo author, this is my second book. Um, when I was uh, working in at, B, at Adobe in the previous tenure, right after the acquisition, we wrote three books out of 99U, which is our sort of think tank for execution right, right, in the creative world. Right. And that was, of course, like a collection of essays. But this is my, um, you know, this is my second real book. And, uh, and it was very meta. I mean, because I was writing this and it was a messy middle journey to write this book. I mean, it was just sort of an endless, um, first of all, the years where I didn't even know what to do with all the content. And then the last two years of trying to bring it together while also figuring out what I wanted to do next in my own career and also trying to get this together to be a book and, uh, and to challenge myself throughout that process. It was so meta. I was like, gosh, you know, I'm in the messy middle, writing about the messy middle. Right. Like, did you go through some of that? The sequel can never be as good as the, as the, as the first book? Totally. Absolutely. I mean, what I, what I've done with this book though, if anyone has read Making Ideas Happen, which came out eight years ago, um, that was more of a traditional business book in the sense that it was written in standard chapters. You know, there's a lot of firsthand or a lot of, a lot of third, uh, right of direct research incorporated and tons of, um, narrative that kind of carries the length of the book in a very proper framework. Whereas for the messy middle, what I realize is that my readers want insights that are easy to navigate to Like there's a very clear table of contents in the beginning, as you know, John, where I kind of outline every, every insight in the book into sections. And it's really intended for people that just jump to sections at when they need it. You know, it's a bit more of a buffet as opposed to a three-course meal. And, um, and and I also recognize that in this modern day, I think that um, a lot of very busy people, especially founders, entrepreneurs, or people leading crazy projects don't have the time to read a business book cover to cover anymore. They want to have more like punchy, insightful, go-to pieces and sections Um versus feeling like they're going out of order, you know? And and so I, the book was also written with an entirely different structure. And so it was one of my ways, long story, long answer to your question of defying kind of my, um, uh, not making it like a sequel or like a, you know, a um, same in the same rhythm of the last book. I just did it completely differently. Right, right. Yeah, it's similar to, well, not, not similar, but uh, Tim Ferriss had, you know, a couple books that are similar in the way that he kind of, 
uh, scrapped the, you know, chapter one, chapter two, and you can kind of jump in. What were they called? Uh, tools of Titans. That was it. Tools right, of right. Titan, yeah. The tribe of mentors, I think was another one that you can kind of jump in and just read insights. You don't have to like read it in order. Um, I think he even says that, like there's a, a prologue where he says, you don't have yeah. to read the book in order. Well, yeah. There's, there's definitely a some... grandmaster. He's also, I also interviewed, interviewed him for this book. So oh, you'll nice. hear <laughs> and learn some of Tim's tips in terms of writing and managing his own, uh, his own energy, you know, in the book. How, how long is this in the making, this book? So this book, I mean, gosh, if you count when I started writing these insights, they're ones from as long as I would say 2001, 2002. No, sorry, 2011, 2012, two years after the last book. So, I mean, it's definitely been five to seven years in the making and then two years of kind of rigorous deadline, deadline written work. <laughs> and when's the, when's the, the official release? Yeah. So the book hits shelves, uh, on October 2nd, um, pre-orders of course, have already started, uh, on Amazon and elsewhere. And uh, I hope folks, if you pre-order it, Amazon typically sends it a few days early. So I hope people, um, uh, get the messy middle and let me know what you think. Yeah, and if you're listening after October second, uh, twenty eighteen, then then yeah, jump on and 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 uh, grab the messy middle off Amazon. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm super excited uh, about this one, Scott. I loved uh, making ideas happen. I thought that was uh, that was a great book. That was a staple, I think, in 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 uh, in a few offices that I've that I've been a part of. So super <laughs> Thanks, excited sir. for this one too, and uh, appreciative of your time to come on and and, and chat about it. No, thank you for having me, really. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.